Thank you for joining us for our Renewal City Church podcast. If you're looking for ways to get involved, join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Roxy Theater in Longview. Or find us online at rcclongview.org. We hope you're blessed and that this message finds you well. When I think of the original Palm Sunday, I imagine people dancing and singing as they run alongside of Jesus as he rides in on a donkey. And it's easy for me to visualize, you know, children waving palm branches and, you know, people prancing about, being all giddy, you know, party, right? If I try real hard, I can almost see Jesus with a big old smile on his face as he watches the jubilant crowds lay down their clothes and the leafy branches in front of him. Then he might travel over them. But our gospel text for this morning tends to kind of spoil the pleasant surprise and the picture of the original Palm Sunday. In that unexpected observation that when Jesus saw Jerusalem, he wasn't smiling and excited and happy. He wept, like openly wept, like not even like a, oh, I shed a tear, like a weeping, a weeping. Jesus seemed so out of place in this elated crowd, especially when we realize that his weeping was not a discreet like, oh, I'm good, no, I'm fine. All right, the Greek word suggests that he sobbed in sorrow, a sorrowful sob, like a legit weeping. To weep like that at such an apparently happy occasion seems almost in bad taste, like crying at a party, all right? It's just downright inconsiderate of other people's feelings. They were trying to have a good time, and he's over there weeping. Like, get it together, Jesus. Now, why was the mood so festive to begin with? Why was this crowd so joyous? What really was the motivation for them to cry out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest? What was it that inspired their enthusiasm? In one word, the answer is hope. They had hope. All right. The people saw in Jesus the fulfillment of their hope. In him, they saw a liberator who they believed would lead them in a fight for freedom against the Romans who occupied their land and dominated the people of Israel. They expected a leader who God would send them, a leader who would empower them against their Roman enemies so that they might drive the oppressors out of their land and Israel could again experience the glory that was their nations during the time of King David. But we will see that this hope may not have simultaneously correct, this hope may have been both simultaneously correct and misplaced, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So today, we've talked about this, is Palm Sunday, a day some refer to as the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Before we dive into this, I'm going to read one of the four passages. Okay, this event was one of the one of the events that everybody. Ooh, what's up, balcony? That's like full today. Uh, one of the events that all four—Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John—thought this is something I need to make sure I talk about. This is one of the big ones. All right. So I'm going to read from Matthew. Matthew 21, 1 through 11 says, "When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples, telling them." Go into the village ahead of you. At once you will find a donkey, tied there with her colt. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place so that what was spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, see the king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them, 
and they brought the donkey and colt. Then they laid their clothes on them and set on, and set on them. A very large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. Then the crowd who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar saying, Who is this? The crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. So good stuff. Very happy, very exciting, kind of like a motorcycle. Oh, Danny, that one was for you. God. Well, too late now, moving on. It's like the 4th of July parade by the lake, only it's way better because there are no sirens and it doesn't last seven hours. So it's good stuff, right? So here I would like to pause and just give you some history of the symbolism of some of the stuff that's happening. Uh, when I was young, I had no idea why it mattered that he was on a donkey, other than like prophet, you know, somebody said he would be on a donkey. I didn't understand the palm branches. I didn't understand the symbolism behind his entry. So I want to I wanna just give it to you. So one, God's word tells us that the people cut palm branches and waved them in the air and they laid them on the ground as Jesus rode into the city. So the palm branches actually represent goodness and victory and were a symbol of the final victory he would soon fulfill over death. You know, oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? Like, it's nowhere because he already beat it. And they knew it was going to happen. Two, Jesus chose to ride in on a donkey, which directly fulfilled the Old Testament prophecy, right? But also, it was common for kings or important people to arrive on a donkey because the donkey symbolized peace. So those who chose to ride them showed that they came with peaceful intentions. Jesus was ever reminding us that he is the Prince of Peace. Three, when the people shouted Hosanna, they were hailing Christ as king. They were saying he is the king. That word actually means save now. Hosanna means save now. And though in their own minds they waited for an earthly king, God had a different way in mind of bringing true salvation to all who would trust in him. But this is a message for next Sunday perhaps. And I say perhaps because I really don't know what James is going to talk about. So it could be anything, and this could have nothing to do with next Sunday. Uh, and then the last thing I want to talk about is in the Gospel of Luke, it says, As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. So the Bible says that Jesus wept for Jerusalem. We talked a little bit about this a minute ago. In the midst of the praise of the moment, he knew in his heart that it would be long, <clears throat> that it wouldn't be long that these same people would turn their backs on him, betray him, and crucify him. His heart broke with the reality of how much they needed a savior. Now, as I said, today is Palm Sunday, the day Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. This day has been described by Christians for generations as the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And if your Bible is like mine. It actually says that right above Matthew 21. It says the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So it's, it's a thing, right? But have you ever asked yourself, if this was a triumphal entry, then why did they crucify Jesus at the end of the week? So a triumphal entry on a Sunday, and on a Friday, they nailed him to a cross. There seems like something maybe happened. So today we're going to address this problem. Such a glorious Sunday for all Christians. What goes so wrong by Friday that Jesus will find himself betrayed by one of his own disciples, 
arrested by the high priest guard, accused by a coalition of religious leaders, tried by the Roman government, and sentenced to die the death of a common criminal crucifixion. So let's cut to another parade that's happening on that very same day. You might not know that Jesus' procession in Jerusalem was not the only one that was happening that day. According to a book, the last week, what the gospel really teaches about Jesus' final day in Jerusalem, uh, in the early 30s AD, Roman historians record that the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate, led a procession of Roman cavalry and centurions into the city of Jerusalem. So at the same time Jesus is rolling in, so is Pontius Pilate. Imagine the spectacle of that entry, all right? From the west side of the city, the opposite side from which Jesus enters, Pontius Pilate leads Roman soldiers on horseback and on foot, some are marching. Each soldier was clad in leather armor, super polished, looking real fresh. They had hammered helmets gleaming in the bright sun. They had their scabbards in their sheaths on their sides. Okay. In their hands, they carried either a spear or the archers had a bow with arrows on their back. Drums beat out the cadence of the march, for this was no ordinary entry into Jerusalem. They weren't just walking in. They were making a ruckus. All right. Pilate, as governor of the, <clears throat> of the religion, which included not only Judea, but Samaria and Udemia, knew it was standard practice for the Roman governor of a foreign territory to be in its capital for a religious celebration. It was the beginning of Passover, which was a strange Jewish festival that the Romans allowed to happen. However, the Romans must have been aware that this festival celebrated the liberation of the Jews from another empire, the Empire of Egypt. All right, so Pilate had to be in Jerusalem. Since the Romans had occupied this land by defeating the Jews and deposing their king about 80 years before, uprisings were kind of at the back of everybody's mind. Could this be another uprising? I mean, that guy's riding on a donkey, probably uprising, right? The last major uprising had happened pretty long before, in about 4 BC. So um, that uprising was where the Romans took over, did their thing. They killed about 2,000 Jews who were accused of being part of the rebellion that they didn't like. All right? The Romans had made their intolerance for rebellion really well known. So on this occasion, when they rolled in, they were really showing, like, don't rebel. It's going to be bad news. So they headed for um, Antonia's fortress because they knew that the temple would be the center of the Passover activities and Antonia's fortress was just adjacent to the temple. And it would be a good vantage point for which them to keep an eye on the Jews, but also for the Jews to see their presence and be all scared and not uprise. All right. It was meant to intimidate the citizens of Jerusalem who might think twice about joining a rebellion if they knew that this army was there literally just like right across the street. <laughs> That's pretty intense. It's a, a really hardcore showing of power if you think about it. Like, you know, I know that you guys haven't technically done anything yet, but look at all the power I have to make sure that you don't do anything. They want to make sure nothing is going on. It's important to think about that as we look at Jesus and the people remember what Roman did, and they were not fans. So we're going to jump over to the other procession, Jesus' procession, kind of jump back to it. So if Pilate's procession was meant to show military might and strength, Jesus' procession was meant to show the opposite. Both Matthew and Mark record Jesus' own words as he instructed his disciples to go into the city and find a donkey tied up. 
and they ask, and they are to ask the owner if they can use the donkey, and then if the owner's like, nah, they're like, well, the Lord says yes, so then they take it, okay? So then Jesus quotes from Zechariah. He quotes, say to the daughter of Zion, see, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. But there is more to this passage that people don't often quote. And I'm going to read you the whole passage because I think it's important to look at it in context. But I will defend my house against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people. For now I am keeping watch. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. Okay, and I'm going to stop there for a second because this is the part that the Jews were stoked about, this top part. Now I'm going to read you the bottom part that I think Jesus was maybe more thinking about. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bows will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the end of the earth. So what Jesus was doing in quoting this, I believe, is he's trying to remind them of the whole entire passage, the peace that would be, the peace that was to come. But the message they heard was God is going to deliver us from the oppressor, whatever he has to do, the oppressor being Rome. They didn't, didn't like Rome, all right? But the king they seek will come to them humbly, not on a steed of war, but on a slow-moving donkey, the symbol of a king who comes in peace. That's what Zacharias says. The two processions could not have been more different in the message that they were trying to convey. Pilate leading Roman centurions asserted the power and might of the emperor of Rome, which crushes all who oppose it. You can't stand in Rome's way. It's going to roll you over. Jesus, riding on a donkey, embodies the peace and tranquility that the shalom that God brings to his people. Those who watch that day will make a choice. They will either serve the God of this world, might and power, or they will choose to serve the king of a very different kind of kingdom, the kingdom of God. But there's another problem, all right? In the book, I like books, titled Leadership on the Line, the authors Marty Linsk and Ron Hefsey define leadership this way. I really like this definition of leadership. Leadership, it is about disappointing your own people at a rate they can absorb, okay? And I, I think arguably... It's the, the best definition of leadership you could find, okay? Leadership is about disappointing your own people at a rate they can absorb. So Jesus has a problem here. Of course, his followers and others who got caught up in the entry into Jerusalem, they think they are choosing to follow Jesus. They are thinking that. But by the end of the week, Jesus will have disappointed the crowd at a rate faster than they could stand. They will turn on him. Even those closest to Jesus, the 12 disciples, they're going to betray him or they're going to abandon him. They're going to deny him. Everybody. It's, it kind of sounds really sucky and lonely. Okay? It's interesting to note that the crowd on that Sunday proclaimed Hosanna to the son of David. In other words, they were placing their faith in Jesus that he would restore the glory of the nation's splendor. Kind of like when King David was there. Okay? That's what the Jews really wanted, to be ruled by a man like David. David was such a great king, he didn't mess up at all. All right? A man so committed to God that the Old Testament prophets had proclaimed that the coming Messiah would sit on the throne of his father David. The Messiah would bring back the glory of Israel, would rid the nation of oppressors, 
would rule benevolently and would be kind to the common people. All right? Jesus had challenged the rules of Judea already. Not the Roman rules, but the local rules. He had said to them that the temple was not the only way to find God's forgiveness, and further, that the temple would be destroyed, all right, with not one stone left on another. Of course, those who made their livings in the temple, like the scribes, the priests, the ruling council, the religious parties, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, a lot of people made their living there, would all lose power and prestige if there was no temple. It would be bad news for them. Or even if the temple was no longer the only place where one could be forgiven by God, that would be devastating to them and their power. So when Jesus miraculously saves the lame man by first saying, your sins are forgiven, and then healing him, he challenged the authority of the temple system. And when Jesus drove the money changers from the temple, proclaiming that the temple was not to be a house, to be a house, uh, sorry, proclaiming that the temple was to be a house of prayer for all nations, but that the religious leaders had made it a den of thieves, Jesus exposed the corruption of the temple tax, the scandalous monetary exchange rate, and the dishonesty of those who sold animals for sacrifice. Right? Jesus had disappointed and alienated some really, really powerful people. He did so because the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, the scribes, most of the Levitical priests, and others who ruled on Rome's behalf were part of the same system of oppression and domination that Pilate was a part of. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem may or may not have been planned to occur the same day as Pilate's procession through the Western Gates. Whether it was planned or not planned... The two processions provide a really interesting contrast that was unmistakable. For you see, Pilate served the son of God too, the late emperor Augustus, who was said to have been fathered by the god Apollo and conceived by his mother Atia. Inscriptions refer to him as the son of God, Lord, and even Savior. After his death, the legend had it that he was seen ascending into heaven to take his place among the gods. Augustus' successor, successors, Tiberius, who was ruling during Jesus' life and ministry, also bore divine titles. Until late in the first century, the emperors would demand to not only be addressed as God, but to be worshipped as gods. All right? So they felt that Jesus coming in saying he was the son of God was a direct clashing. Okay? A contrast between kings and kingdoms was on display that day in Rome. And although many of the common people thought they sided with Jesus, they did so for the same reasons the Pharisees and others sided with Rome. They thought Jesus could do for them what Rome had done for their rulers, make their lives better, deliver them from oppressive systems under which they lived and worked, and turn the tables on the Romans. That's why the crowd turns on Jesus by the end of the week. They don't think he's going to do any of those things by this point. And in addition, Jesus is going to make life worse for them, not better. Their religious leaders, all of them, who never agree on anything, agree that Jesus is going to attract the attention of Rome, the Roman Empire, especially during Passover, and Rome will come down fast and hard on the entire nation. The armies were already there. We're ready to go. So when Jesus is accused, when he's brought by Pilate before the angry mobs, they want to be rid of him. Jesus, in their minds, never did what they wanted him to do. He never defeated the Romans. 
He never dissolved the unfair tax system. He never put common people in charge of the government. And furthermore, he never would. They realized that that's not what he's there to do. To appease the crowds that swelled in the city of Jerusalem, Pilate had the custom of releasing prisoners, many of whom were political prisoners. But on this last week in the life of Jesus, Pilate offers the crowd a choice between Barabbas, a known robber and murderer, and Jesus, a failed Messiah. Fearing that if Jesus were released, he would start all over again. The crowd begged for Barabbas to be released and for Jesus to be executed. And not just any kind of execution, they wanted him crucified. Okay? Because the crucifixion was the one form of capital punishment that would show Rome the Jews were completely loyal to Rome. And it would save their own hides. If we crucify him, they won't think we had anything to do with him. And it would humiliate Jesus even in death. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm sure that that's a story for another Sunday, perhaps next Sunday. Again, I have no idea what James is talking about, so I'm not foreshadowing, just maybe next Sunday. All right? But for one moment, I want you to ask yourself a couple questions. If I had been in Jerusalem that day and had seen both processions, dude on a donkey, Romans looking fly, right? Which one would I have chosen to follow? Because this is the choice we make every day to choose power and might over love, to choose the way things are done over the way God intends for them to be. Two processions, two theologies, two choices. Okay, Which would you choose? What kind of king do you expect? And as I leave you, I will leave you with this Palm Sunday reminder. Okay, The reign of Christ is far greater than any the mind of man could ever conceive or plan. Man looked for someone to fight their battles in the present-day world. Yet God had the ultimate plan of sending his son to fight the final battle over death. This is the greatness of why we celebrate this week. Because of Christ's ultimate sacrifice, we can be set free of death. Okay. So I didn't put any questions together because I don't really like them that much. Um, but I'm going to give you about 10 minutes to just talk to the people around you. And you can talk about this, like that's fine, but you don't have to. You can talk about how your week's going or what you're going to do next week or what you wish or dream or like. But I do want you to talk. I love that part. But I don't feel like I need to direct your talk. Does that make sense? Okay, so I'm going to give you a couple minutes. Just get to know people. I think that relationships are important and that we can build them by just talking. Okay, go. Three, two, one, go. Go.